0: When I hear the carol, Silent Night, each year, it's a moment to really pause and reflect on the actual nativity scene and be in the scene. The cave, the place, the moment when Jesus was born, when things are quiet, peaceful, kind of unassuming, and yet it's super revolutionary if you listen to the message. I think of World War I and the stories you heard about the soldiers in the trenches on either side. Its significance has reverberated across the world and across millennia. It invites us to sort of slow down and block out all of the noise for two and a half minutes. It's just uncomplicated and unhurried and freeing.
1: I hear echoes of Bing Crosby singing Silent Night to us when I was very, very young. We listened and we listened and we listened and it was wonderful. It meant Christmas.
2: Welcome to Hark, a podcast about the meaning and the making of our favorite Christmas carols. I'm your host, Maggie Van Dorn. And over the four weeks of Advent, we're unwrapping one song at a time. We'll look at the musical development of these jingles, along with the religious messages baked into their lyrics. And on this final episode of the season, during the last week of Advent, We're cueing Silent Night. A crowd favorite and staple of midnight masses everywhere.
3: What would you say that this song is about? It's such a simple, simple song, but it provides a picture to me. Here's this young girl who's been riding on a donkey and she's pregnant. And finally, they get to just a shack, and she has a baby, the baby that's going to save the world. As a singer, I hear all the different harmonies in Silent Night, so that when I sing it, I'm singing harmony, too, in my head. It's almost like you can hear angels singing
4: and silent, silent night holy holy night
2: over the course of this series we've talked to music experts and scripture scholars theologians and choir directors and it felt really important to add one more
3: voice to the conversation My name is Rusty McDermott, and I'm from a suburb of Chicago, Mount Prospect, Illinois. I have sung for years and years and years and years, and in church choirs for over 40 years. Rusty has an angelic voice.
2: It's a voice that has sung this carol to many candlelit congregations. It's also the voice of a mother, and not just any mother.
3: Our oldest son, Jim, Father Jim, he doesn't want to hear me say father, (laughs) (laughs) works for America. He's a Jesuit. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. With a wonderful mom who I imagine sang the best lullabies. It's the way that the music is written. It flows. It lilts. Hmm. I don't know if that... (laughs) explains it, but there's a movement to it that is serene and gentle, but it's a lilting type of a thing.
2: So one of the lyrics in Silent Night goes, uh, round yon virgin, mother and child. And I have sung it so habitually and only recently started thinking what is round yon virgin? <laughs> like like what is the round like what is
3: that referring
2: to? <laughs> Did you ever pause at that verse? I,
3: I have not, but but I'm wondering if it isn't that everything or everyone gathered round mm-hmm. the virgin mother and child holy infant so tender and my I think there was a presence around her around the whole scene. Rusty's right. Yawn is an
2: antiquated word for over there or that, so around that young maiden or that virgin. The grammar remains very foreign to our ears. And to my surprise, so too did the original lyrics. So I'd like to read you the original text that has been translated from the German. Okay. So this is from the early 19th century. Yeah. So it's silent night, holy night. All are sleeping. Alone and awake, only the intimate holy pair. Lovely boy with curly hair. Sleep in heavenly peace. Sleep in heavenly peace.
3: Beautiful.
2: Right? It's different. It's different it's from yon Virgin, Mother and Child, yes. holy infants so of tender and mild.
3: Right. That's beautiful. This little child with the curly hair and this young couple all alone. Just
2: the detail of the curly hair makes me think yeah. and consider Jesus's humanity all the more so. Like, not in the abstract or the big theological no, ways, no. but right, just no. thinking of a, a, a little baby boy with curly hair. You know, just like thinking right. of 10 fingers
3: and 10 toes makes yes. the incarnation real. Right. A little rosebud mouth and,
4: mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> you know, crying yeah. at first. But then, and I, I don't think he kept crying, though. So. I think it was, I think it was one cry and that's when everything went still. I just, that's the way, that's the way I picture it. Maybe he did later on, but I just yeah. think it became completely still for anything and everything that was around him mm-hmm. and her. And I imagine how difficult it must've been for her, you know, in laboring and everything.
4: Yeah,
3: And yet That the moment of birth, here was this perfect little person Mm -hmm. who, as you said, had 10 fingers and 10 toes and curly hair, just like a regular little boy.
0: Silent Night has one of the most easy to pinpoint origin stories of a lot of these carols.
2: This is Colin Britt who you may recognize as the composer and conductor we spoke with about Hark the Herald Angels Sing in Episode 3.
0: It was written by Franz Gruber, who was asked by a lyricist named Joseph Moore to set his text, Stille Nacht, to music.
2: We now know who first wrote and composed Silent Night, but for a while there, Colin says the history wasn't so clear.
0: It was erroneously attributed to some different people, and I think part of that was because People wanted it to be written by a Mozart or a Beethoven. They wanted it to be somebody really big and famous so that they could probably distribute it faster. But it has very humble origins.
1: I'm a Jesuit from the Midwest and currently in Cincinnati, Ohio.
2: This is Ed Schmidt.
1: I work the campus chapel and parish and also in the Mission and Identity Office for the university.
2: In 2018, Ed visited the birthplace of Silent Night on assignment for America.
1: I had been in Lithuania. I went there to write some dispatches for America about the visit of the Pope. When that was over, I flew from there to Vienna, and on the airplane, I took a look at the magazine, and there was a story about an exhibition Opening up in Salzburg to commemorate the 200th anniversary of Silent Night.
2: Years prior, Ed had studied in Salzburg, so he was delighted to have an excuse to return.
1: I took a train to Salzburg, went to the exhibition. It was a fabulous exhibition of old artifacts, records, a copy of Bing Crosby's Silent Night record was there. And it was just fascinating. The tour guide. Was really really good and enthusiastic.
2: So, Silent Night is one of the most popular Christmas songs the world over. But unlike a lot of popular Christmas carols, uh, it originates in in Salzburg in Austria and very close to Germany. So many of the carols that we know and love today come from nineteenth century England. Hmm. Do you think that there is something distinctively Austrian or Germanic about Silent Night.
1: The villages where it was written and first performed represent a lot of the sophisticated simplicity of the Austrian countryside. Mm. I remember getting on the train in Vienna and heading off towards Salzburg and just gazing out the window at these small towns with the church in the middle of the town with its white tower and its onion dome are very typical of Austria. There's a peacefulness to the countryside that I think the people all, even in the cities, somehow reflect. They know that this is their heritage. These small towns, these villages, where people are friendly, where people get along, where people work hard. Where people enjoy their life. And I think somehow the song reflects that.
2: So just how did we come to recover Silent Night from its true and humble origins?
1: The authorities in Berlin started wondering where did this song come from? And they wrote down to Salzburg and they tried to do some inquiries. It was the Royal Prussian Court Orchestra that wanted to get to
2: the bottom of this carol. And in 1854, they reached out to St. Peter's Abbey a Benedictine monastery in Salzburg. The monastery's choral inspector was charged with finding the original score of Stille Nacht. As chance would have it, the son of Franz Zaver Gruber was a choir boy at St. Peter's.
1: Eventually they made contact with the son of Franz Xaver Gruber, who referred it to his father, and his father wrote a description of the origin of the song.
2: And so they discovered that Silent Night was, in fact, a collaboration between Franz Xaver Gruber and his friend, Father Joseph Moore.
1: Silent Night began in 1816, Mm -hmm. when a priest around Salzburg, Austria, when he wrote some lines to speak to the situation, Austria had been in a violent time, a violent period. And he was speaking of peace Hmm. and the quiet that had become, finally, after years and years of conflict. So he did this in 1816, and two years later, 1818, he asked a friend of his to set it to music as a Christmas song. The man who wrote the words was Joseph Moore, a young priest.
2: Was he a Catholic priest, or was...?
1: Oh yes, that part of Austria is very Catholic. And the the little town was called Oberndorf, Austria. It's it's very close to Salzburg. And the musician was Franz Zaver Gruber, and they were friends. So Moore, in 1818, invited Gruber to set the words to music. And they performed them for the first time Christmas Eve, 1818, in a church in this little town in Austria. The
0: church organ wasn't working. And there's different versions of the story.
2: Here's Colin Britt again.
0: Which say that the church had been flooded or it had been damaged by mice. But at any rate, the carol was premiered on Christmas Eve in 1818 with voice and guitar.
2: And was that unusual to just have a guitar accompanying you?
0: At the time, I would think it would have been pretty unusual for a church service in Austria or Germany to be having guitar accompaniment, yes. Typically, a lot of these churches, very elegant organs, and so sacred music would have been accompanied primarily by organ or it would have been an a cappella motet. So there's something very sweet and innocent about the origins of this particular carol being something as intimate as... Being accompanied by a solo guitar. So, I think there's a couple factors that make this carol very accessible. And those factors can be traced back to both its origins and also, I think, the theology and the scriptural references of this. So, the origins of this song being performed on guitar, it's actually a three chord song. And, you know, a lot of these carols have much more complex harmonies. And this one pretty much has 1, 4, and 5, sort of the three most basic chords in a major key.
2: Could you play those? Please? Sure.
0: So uh, the, th- the three most basic chords in a major key, which would be the 1, the 4, and the 5. And Silent Night uses those three. We go to 5, back to 1. Then we go to 4, 1. 1. We do that twice and then we go back to five again finally. Five, one. In general, the construction of this is really breathtakingly simple. It's uncomplicated based on repetition and on these. I mean, the entire last half of the piece is actually just arpeggios. You know, it's arpeggio on the five chord. And then this is an arpeggio on the one chord so the utilitarian aspect of that is that it can be played on a lot of different instruments by people who may not have a lot of musical training. And if you're trying to make a piece accessible for guitar, it would make sense that you wouldn't write a particularly complicated accompaniment. It's very common in Western traditions to set the topic or the subject of pastoral scenes, including where shepherds were Biting in their fields by setting it in a lilting triple meter, hmm. where you would have one, two, three, one, two, three, and also often using pipes, using oboes and reeds.
2: Or is that to evoke the pastoral theme of the song?
0: Yeah, shepherds quaking at the site, the pastoral theme that appears in the second verse is the meter, and that lilting triple meter feel is evocative of the scenes of shepherds piping in the fields. But the other part of it is that. Triple meter is also often used in lullabies. And so you get this rocking motion. So it's the combination of the triple meter with this rocking cradle sound.
2: Right. Are there any lullabies that come to mind that also use that meter?
0: Well, the Brahms one is probably the most famous one. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) so yeah, a lot of lullabies have a rocking, lilting feel to them.
2: Yeah, it does stand out to me as different from a lot of the really triumphant carols or the cheerful jingles that we hear at this time of year. Mm -hmm. I would definitely categorize it as one of the quieter, pensive songs.
0: It kind of is a lullaby. I mean, sleep in Mm -hmm. heavenly peace. It's an invitation to rest and to take comfort.
2: So, when you say lullaby, it actually brings to mind a story that was shared in the New York Times about George H.W. Bush. When he was on his deathbed, he was visited by the Irish tenor Ronan Tynan, and Ronan had been called earlier in the day to ask if he could come by and sing to the president. And he sang two songs. The first was Silent Night, and the second was a Gaelic song. and. It said that as he was singing Silent Night, President Bush was mouthing the words to it as he lay there on his deathbed. And I just think it's an incredibly touching story, you know, to think about this not only as a lullaby to a child, but also to an old man.
0: Yeah, and a lot of biblical imagery and the way that it's treated in these carols is sort of wrapped up in this juxtaposition of life and death, right? I mean, Mm. you know, our understanding of the Messiah is that this child is born to die. And so a lot of these carols have elements of death woven into life. One of the more famous versions of that is uh, We Three Kings. Which you know lists off the three gifts and talk about he- how each of these gifts is going to foreshadow something in this child's life, and of course you know you're talking about this little baby and you're saying suffering and dying and sealed in a stone cold tomb. It's you know, <laughs> but um, mm. with Silent Night, I think there's that element of you know heavenly rest and you know eternal life. Sure. And so sleep in heavenly peace could refer both to the slumbering of a child and also eternal sleep, of falling asleep into eternal rest, and I think that that's one of the, the things that this this song kind of ties together nicely, and, and in not quite so maybe graphic a way as some of those other carols, but there's definitely a lot of that circle of life component that's included in these songs. And the other thing too, of course, is you know the familiarity of this tune, this particular carol, Everyone has it ingrained in their system just because it's so recognizable. So knowing that President Bush was mouthing the words, music can recall parts of our brain that have shut off.
4: Mm -hmm. And
0: so, you know, you hear people who have had Alzheimer's or have lost the ability to have conversations who kind of wake up when they hear music and they start singing along because it's accessing a part of their brain that they can't otherwise access. Right. Right. And so the idea of uh, this beloved Carol, you know, not only bringing someone comfort, but also perhaps giving them this little bit of spark is understandable.
2: When I was a child, I loved playing with every nativity scene I could find. One year, my mom even got these life-size glowing figures that sat on our front lawn. And I spent many a days playing with and around Jesus, Mary, Joseph, and the gang. This is how many of us come to learn the story of Jesus' birth. We play with figurines and we sing songs like this one. So the whole scene feels very familiar. But how many of us have spent time around barn animals? Donkeys are hemming and hawing, sheep are bleeding, and a newborn baby? He was likely anything but silent. I asked Colin, who recently became a father, what he makes of this so-called silent night.
4: (laughs)
0: <laughs> I love that notion of, and there's so many Christmas carols, old and new, talking about how this child is, is sleeping sweetly and quietly. And I'm thinking, <laughs> 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 my daughter's clearly not the Messiah. <laughs> <laughs> Away in a Manger is another yeah, one that has- has um, The
2: little you know, Lord Jesus. No, no crying
0: he makes. <laughs> yeah, no
2: crying. No Jesus. <laughs> Fully human, except for the tears. Those come later. Then again, maybe this silence is so sweet that when it finally does arrive, we write songs about
0: it. When newborns are are actually sleeping, it is the most peaceful, sweet, innocent, beautiful thing you can imagine. But that's punctuated by some pretty loud moments too.
4: British soldiers listened with wonder as the carol heilige Nacht, arose from the German trenches. All of a sudden, I saw lights all
2: along the German trenches, all coming up there in sort of Christmas trees, and they started singing Christmas carols. They sang a silent night. We all called the other chaps who were sleeping, called them to come along and look at this, and they all came there. We started singing carols too. Some of us went over at once, and they came to this barbed wire fence between us, and very soon, we were exchanging gifts. So one of the stories that many of us know, but which is still just so chilling to me, is the story of Silent Night being sung in 1914 during World War I on the Western Front during a ceasefire between British and German troops.
0: So I've heard different versions of the story of the Christmas truce of 1914. I mean, what's agreed upon is, of course, that there was a ceasefire that Allied troops and German troops put down their weapons, allowed each side to collect the bodies of soldiers who'd been killed, and they traded cigarettes and drinks and food and even started singing their own songs back and forth but one of the songs that of course they have in common is Silent Night which has you know its origins as a German carol Stille Nacht but by this point of course English-speaking troops knew it as Silent Night and so you know one side could have been singing Stille Nacht and the other side could join in singing Silent Night Mm -hmm. and it's sort of this embodiment of the universality of music and the message of peace at Christmas.
4: Right.
2: For this evening, the war didn't rage. All was calm. All was bright.
1: And I believe that after this day was over, the hostilities broke out again. Here's Ed Schmidt. There was not a lasting peace that came from this event. It was a respite, a rest. Right. But it was something that people remembered as a, as a wonderful experience.
2: Mm. I had also read that, Those who had engaged in this truce over Christmas were taken off the front lines.
1: Hmm, I don't Um, know that.
2: Yeah, that the commanders really didn't see it as an advantage to have those who had humanized the enemy fighting on the front lines. And so they were replaced with those who hadn't seen any fighting yet.
1: Interesting. Interesting.
2: Just as this carol has been invoked to foster peace, it has also been usurped for evil.
1: During the Second World War, there was a time when the words were altered, replaced, as they've been many, many, many times. But at one point, the the part of the tune that says, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, Mm -hmm. or the original would be more literally translated, all is sleeping alone watches only the close, most holy couple, Mary and Joseph. Well, this got changed in some Nazi versions. Quiet night, holy night. Everyone is sleeping. Everything is sleeping. Only one is awake, Adolf Hitler. For the history of Germany leads us to greatness To fame, to good fortune, he gives the Germans power. And that was a version of the song that came out in the Second World War in Germany.
2: This wouldn't be the only time Silent Night was appropriated during the war. The leaders of the Allied forces also turned to the hymn.
1: Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt did join together in celebrating the The song as part of their movement to address the war issues i can read you it's a very short description from the wall of the museum that i saw at christmas 1941 u.s president franklin d roosevelt and his british guest winston churchill stepped out together onto the balcony of the white house the two allies had met during these days to discuss Hitler's alarming victories in Europe. Together with the crowd gathered in front of the White House, they sang Silent Night. So this was 1941. Mm. They were still hoping for peace.
2: Why do you suppose this song has been invoked in the midst of both world wars?
1: It speaks of heavenly peace.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: It speaks of what we long for to get rid of this war, to bring peace to our land. It speaks to our heart's desire for reconciliation, for solidarity within the human family, what Jesus' birth stands for, helping us to live better lives, to be better people, helping us to be the good that we can be, Could we look into our own hearts with this beautiful song and say, maybe I've got to change a little bit. Not only do those folks have to change, but let me see where I have to change too. I think the lyrics speak to that. And that's what makes it so universally popular. I say universally popular it's been translated into more than 300 languages. Yeah. That's quite a record for a song.
2: I've heard some people speak about Advent as a time when the past, the present, and the future come together, Hmm. that we're looking, of course, back to the birth of Jesus. We're celebrating that birth today and and perhaps the inbreaking of God today, and we're also looking towards the second coming. A lot of the scripture texts are around Revelation. So I wonder too, if the Advent season is, you know, already and not yet sort of moment where we are celebrating peace and yet we are fully aware of the brokenness of the world.
1: Yeah, it certainly looks forward. It's saying whatever we need, whatever we're hoping for, we certainly don't have it yet. It's yet to come. We've got to be ready. If the final appearance of Jesus came to us, like right now at this moment, would we recognize him? Are we are we ready for him? Well, that's what Advent is trying to do, to make us ready so that when We do celebrate Christmas. We know what we're celebrating. We're celebrating? Yeah, Jesus is with us. We need him, we want him, we see him. Here he is.
2: What have we gathered about the carol, Silent Night? While being a universally cherished hymn, Silent Night was not the work of Beethoven, Mozart, or Haydn. It was the result of a friendship between two Austrians, Franz Gruber and Joseph Mohr. It was first played on the guitar and sung in German, but it has since been performed in many ways— on the piano, violin, harp, and flute. And translated into some 300 languages, with countless goosebump-inducing harmonies. Unlike the other Christmas carols we've reviewed this season, Silent Night was intended as and has always been a Christmas carol, and it was first performed by the very people who created it. If you find yourself naturally swaying or calmer while listening to Silent Night, that's because of the lilting rhythm of the song, which evokes the pastoral scene of the manger. It has ushered momentary calm in times of war and was also sung to a president breathing his last. And finally, while the event of Jesus' birth was almost certainly not a silent night, there is no greater peace than that of a baby sleeping soundly. We'll close this episode with the Liturgy Arts Group of Boston College performing Silent Night in a specially produced recording for Hark. Thank you for listening to Hark. This has been a joyful podcast for us to make, and in that same spirit of celebrating how things are made, I want to unpack our credits with you a bit differently. Hark is a production of America Media. We are so fortunate to have studio space, microphones to ship, a host of expert guests, amazing artwork by Allison Hamilton, and the support of our executive producer, Sebastian Gomes. The sound engineering for this episode comes from Jim Villado, and I think you'll agree we couldn't make a podcast about music without bringing on some exceptionally talented sound designers to help us break down miraculous chords, descants, and music theory. And while we're on that note, our theme music was custom-made for Hark by the wildly talented Frank Tucson, who you've heard in the credits of previous episodes for his engineering. So talented and generous are our sound wizards that they even got behind the mic to record some of the vocals you've heard over these four weeks. Jim, Frank, thank you for working weekends and odd hours, even across time zones, to make this happen. We owe a huge debt of gratitude to our assistant producer, Kira Hanlon. Kira's rummaged through hours of tape to help us piece together a truly polished production. And she's connected us to John Sage, Meyer Chambers, and the Liturgy Arts Group of Boston College, who performed Silent Night especially for this episode. Emma Holland, the creative manager of Pray As You Go, went to great lengths to help us secure some of the most surprising recordings you've heard on the show. We have her to thank for introducing us to the music of Salt of the Sound and One Hope Project, and the artists associated with Convivium Records. Thank you also to Benjamin Sheen of the Choir of King's College, Cambridge, Adrian Green of Convivium Records, Wendell Laurent and Jacqueline Perez of the Ignatian Scola, and Brother Nikolai of Harper Day for allowing us to play their mesmerizing recordings of the carols you've heard throughout the series. And a big shout out to Rusty's son, our associate editor, Jim McDermott, for helping us throw every wild idea against the wall until something stuck. Jim has also been writing excellent articles to accompany each episode and carol we discuss. You can read them at americamagazine.org. And finally, this series would not have been possible or nearly as good without the extensive research, fierce editing, elegant writing, and attentive ear of my friend and co-producer Ricardo da Silva. He has sacrificed sleep and sanity to make each episode sing, and he's done all the legwork to ensure every version of the carols featured on the podcast has been licensed or gifted to Hark. So if you want to join me in thanking this team for all their hard work, here's what you can do. Share the show. Even though this is the last episode of the season, it's never too late to binge your favorite carols. So go ahead and forward this series to your friends and family. Give it some love on social media, shout it from the Welkin on a silent night. The other thing you can do to support this show and all the work we do at America is to get a digital subscription just go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. And if you've already got one, maybe there's someone in your life who would love to be gifted with an America subscription this Christmas. And that does it. For America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn. Until next year, thanks for caroling with us.